0: Our passage this morning is Romans chapter 8, verses 12 to 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the full die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the word of the Lord.
1: I want us to make sure that we catch those words that we say there and don't let them just become routine. We said just now and heard, this is the word of the Lord. And because this is the word of the Lord, uh, we dare not sit down and receive it as an audience to be entertained. We are worshipers and our goal and hope is that we will direct our worship as we read from his word and hear from his word to the one true living God himself. In April 3, there was a couple. They saw a dragon-like, monsterish animal cross the path of their car and disappear into a lake. This was mysterious, and the news got out, and so uh, there was a big game hunter that was hired to search out this lake and around this lake to find this monstrous creature, and he found some large footprints. The story continued to grow, and and there was a photo taken even of a possible glimpse of this monster in this lake. You may know where I'm going with this, but this monster, we know more as the Loch Ness Monster. And what was perhaps a mystery at first, whatever may or may not have crossed this couple's path, quickly moved into myth. And myth and mystery can quickly take off too. Mystery can move into myth, and then it can all of a sudden be sort of mystical or even a magical kind of thing that starts getting spread. Life in the spirit can maybe seem a little bit like the story of the Log Ness monster. Because when I say life in the spirit, that might bring all sorts of things to your mind. It, It perhaps is a bit mysterious. You might think like the Loch Ness Monster, like maybe it's there, maybe it's not there, we're not really sure. Or a personal experience like a monstrous figure crossing in front of your car or seeing large footprints in the sand, all those things, a personal experience or experience of, of one close to you, can be largely formational on what life in the Spirit looks like, either positively or negatively, and quickly the the mystery of life in the Spirit can move from something that's mysterious to something that's mythical, mystical, or even magical. And now why there's certainly mystery in life? in the Spirit of God, that the Spirit of God, the one that the heavens can't even contain, could dwell in the midst of people inside of us. That's a profound mystery. While there is certainly mystery to life in the Spirit, there's also much clarity. Romans 8 is a chapter that shows much about life in the Spirit. And the life in the Spirit that Paul speaks of, especially in these verses, is a life of both participation and identification. That is, life in the Spirit is a life of activity and a life of identity. Verses 12 through 17 are written to encourage us to be active participants with the Spirit and to be these identity recipients from the Spirit that dwells within us. So verse 11, Paul said, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, which, again, there's the profound mystery in reality that for those who are in Christ, who there's no condemnation, have the Spirit of God, Spirit that raised Christ from dead, dwelling in them. And if that's true, he says that you have life now through His Spirit who dwells in you. Because the Spirit gives life. And because the Spirit gives life, here's what Paul goes on to say in verse 12. So then, brothers, firming them, We are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. To live according to the flesh is to live according to sinful desires, sinful nature, Romans 1-ish type stuff, right? Like the the sexual immorality, the the disobedience to authority figures, faithlessness or heartlessness is to give yourself and to live for those kinds of desires. The desire to be who I want to be, to not do what the, and live in light of the, creator and the design of that creator, but to go my own way, to be my own and to worship how I see fit. It's to live outside of God's design of worship, outside of God's design of authority, outside of God's design for sexuality, outside of God's design for possessions. He says you covet outside of God's design for your lips that are meant to praise God. Instead, they're gossiping. That's living according to the flesh. And here's what he says. Those who live according to the flesh, there are those who set their mind on the things of the flesh. That is their, their attention and their affection is captured By these things, and living according to flesh, having your mind set on the things of the flesh leads to death. The the life in the flesh is a life lived under the reign of sin and death. But Christians, in in the book of Romans, it's those who have faith in Jesus. Christians are those that the Spirit has set free. Verse 2. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk, not according to the flesh anymore, but according to the spirit. Since that's true of Christians, here's what he now says. You're not debtors to the flesh anymore. You're no longer slaves to sin and flesh having to obey its passions. The flesh, sin, no longer governs your life. There's new management now. There's a a new power in charge, and it's a really good one because verse 13 goes on to say, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. So it's good that that now has been turned over to something else, If you're living according to the flesh, this is the direction. This is the destination. It's moving from death to death. You live according to the flesh and you will die. You're experiencing some death now if you're living according to the flesh, distance from God, outside of His design. You're you're living in a way that you can feel and sense a, a part of that death, but you're moving to death, eternal death. The Spirit now indwells those who are believers so that they're not debtors to that flesh anymore, to live a life from death to death. The Spirit is the one, is the one who has given new life. So what does that Spirit in them and that life with the Spirit in them look like? Notice in verse 12 that he says, Brothers, we're not debtors to, live, or to the flesh to live according to the flesh. But there's not the second part of that. You would expect maybe there to say, we're not debtors to the flesh to live according to the flesh. We're debtors to the Spirit to live according to the Spirit. He's been doing that in chapter 8 so far, hasn't he? But chapter 8, verse 12b that we might want to insert or think is there is absent. I think it's provocative. Why doesn't he go on to say it, that we're debtors to the spirits? I think because that doesn't really explain it. It's not how Paul wants to explain it. Life in the Spirit... It isn't a life that he wants to portray as a life that's paying off some sort of debt. As if that were possible. And not only is it impossible that we could pay off God, but it diminishes the gospel. Because here's what's true in the gospel. In Christ, that is those who have faith in Christ, right now what is true is that there is no condemnation. Right now what is true, if you are in Christ Jesus, those who are in Christ, right now what is true is that you are righteous. God has declared your righteousness now. What's true is that you are justified. What's true is chapter 5, verse 1, that you right now have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of that is offered freely and is only ever received. You can never work your way into it, You you never can earn it, and so when the Spirit comes and sets free, He sets you free not to repay a debt, but to live. And life in the Spirit, though not repayment, is also not inactive. Verse 13, He says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You live according to the flesh, you're going to die. It moves from death to death, but by the Spirit, there's another way to live. And here's the way to live. It's an active way to live. It's by the Spirit you put to death... The deeds of the body. That's the life that leads to life. The body, that's the part of the Christian that is dead because of sin. That's in verse 10, right? If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin. It's the part in us that, that hasn't quite caught up to our identity in Christ, hasn't fully gotten up to it because it still needs resurrection. We experience some resurrection, but outwardly we're wasting away. Inwardly we can be renewed. Outwardly we're wasting away. It still needs resurrection. That's the body. And the flesh, sin, is expressed through the body. And so here's what he says, that the deeds of that body need to be put to death. Not, I mean, don't insert something else there, not tolerated, not kind of gently maneuvered around, put to death. It's by the Spirit that he says to do this. There's active participation here on behalf of the Christian. It's an active participation with the Spirit that carries out the command to put to death the deeds of the body. It's the Spirit that frees from the power of sin and also empowers putting to death that sin, the deeds of the body. Now, on your phone or on your computer, you will get periodically software updates. And for your updates, all you have to do is it'll, it'll probably prompt you You just click install, update. That update will work out some bugs. It will give you some improvements. It will probably change a few images, things that look a little differently. And all you do is click install, and you just wait for it to happen. I think that we can be in danger of treating life in the spirit like that. I'll just click install, right? I'm in Christ, and let's just sit back, and let's let the operating system do its work while we wait. And we watch. Paul says we have the Spirit, so let's just click install and let's wait for these updates to take over operations and let's receive the benefits. But passivity and life in the Spirit don't go together. That's why you have commands all over the New Testament that are speaking to believers, people who have the Spirit dwelling in them. So the New Testament certainly doesn't envision that people who have the Spirit dwelling in them He doesn't envision them as being passive people. There's all sorts of things to do. There are commands all over the New Testament, and that helps explain life in the Spirit because there is no other sort of Christian, right? There's only those who have the Spirit dwelling in them or there are those who are not Christians. There's not a middle ground. You either have the Spirit and are Christian or you don't. And to all those who have the Spirit, there's all these commands to obey, To walk out. So in other words, there's no passivity in the Christian life. But I think we buy this sometimes, don't we? With sin, it might sound like this. You just need to hand that sin over to God. Let go of it and let God take care of it. Sit back while the Spirit does His work. Now, let me ask you, should we hand stuff over to God? Yes. Yes. What does God say to do with it? Here's what he says to do with your sin. He says put it to death. Life in the Spirit is a life of activity, a life of active participation with the Spirit. And here's what you do with the Spirit. You do what God tells you to do. And the Spirit is going to empower you to be able to do those things. So should we hand our sin over to God? Yes. And here's what he tells us to do. Put to death the deeds of the body. Start living in obedience to the Father. Start living for the glory of God. That's this handing it over to God. So if that's what you mean, then I'm all in on that. But if you just mean like let's just let God have it and we don't do anything, then you are outside of what the New Testament's understanding of what your life as a Christian should look like. Life in the spirit is a life of active participation with the spirit. So what does he say? We are to put to death the deeds of the body. Well, how does a Christian do that? How does a Christian put to death the deeds of the body? To to put to death is to take the power, take the life, the vigor, the strength away from something. And I think that that starts with identifying what those things are, identifying the deeds of the body. Luckily, in some Parallel kind of passages, Paul gives us a pretty good list. So in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, he says, I say, walk by the Spirit. Walk again, there's some action. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Well, what are those? The desires of the flesh. They're against the Spirit. And their desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident: Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, right? He says it's not an exhaustive list, but here's some things that are deeds of the body, deeds of the flesh, things that you might struggle with. And those are the types of things you're to put to death. Or in Colossians chapter 3 He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Well, what's earthly? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So there's another list. Those are the kinds of things that are the deeds of the body, and we need to recognize those by the Spirit, and we can recognize that by the Spirit, that this is the Spirit that verse 14 is going to tell us the Spirit leads. Verse 26 is the Spirit who helps. This is the Spirit who, verse 27, searches hearts. And so we can recognize these deeds of the body by the power of the Spirit in us. And once we identify them, we want to start draining the life out of them. And that sounds graphic. I mean, I think of something graphic when I think draining the life out of something. But he says, put to death. Drain the life out of it. See those deeds as deeds that are of the flesh and where do deeds of the flesh go? Like, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. They only produce the fruit of death. So we need to see them rightly for what they are, as worthless things, deeds that lead to death, sin against a holy God, offensive to this holy God. We need to see these things as things that led to what we saw in verse 3, right? God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. That's how bad sin is that the son of God had to be sent in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. And we we know that the story of the cross, the horrific scene of the son of God absorbing death. We need to be active in viewing the deeds of the body in light of that scene, in light of the cross. In other words, when we look at the cross, we need to see the sin is that bad. My sin is that bad that Jesus, the Son of God, had to die. And then if we see them as that bad, we should want to run away from them. Just leave those deeds of the body there. But We don't just turn away. We don't want to stop there. We don't want to just see the deeds of the body as deeds that lead to death. We also want to see life in the spirit as a life that's that's better. It leads from life to life. We have life now and we will have life in the future. This is a better way. eh? Verse 1, there's no condemnation in this life because we're in Christ Jesus. Verse 2, the law of the spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. There was sin in us that was so bad that it had to be condemned, right, in the flesh by Jesus. But Christ is that good that he took that condemnation upon himself so that we wouldn't have to. And so at the cross, yes, we're looking, we're saying sin is that bad that Christ had to die. And yet in him we can also say, but God is that good that he willingly died so that my condemnation wouldn't fall on me but has already fallen on Jesus. So you want to turn away from your sin at the cross, and you want to turn to Christ, all in the same scene. And both of those are vital to putting to death the deeds of the body. One author says this. I encourage you to read this book by John Owen, Mortification of Sin. He says, hatred of sin as sin, not only as galling or disquieting. Let's just stop for a second there. Sin as sin. Not just sin's consequences, not just how it messes with you or or does something kind of subjective. Sin as sin before God. Hatred of sin as sin. And a sense of the love of Christ on the cross lie at the bottom of all true spiritual mortification. You want to put to death the deeds of the body, you need to see sin as sin before a holy God and you need to see the love of Christ. And that hatred is For sin is sin. And that love that you see from Christ, what those things do is they drain the life out of deeds of the body. Drain the life and the power and the vigor and the strength out of sin. Because when you sin, you see like that. My sin did that. And yet he did that for me. So I don't want to do that. If you're struggling to see the deeds of the body as deeds that lead to death and bear the fruit of death, which... We can understand, right? Like, the parts of the deeds of the body are, are satisfying for a minute, right? And they make us feel good for a minute, right? There, there's all kinds of allurements to deeds of the body. And so you might be struggling to see them as deeds that lead to death. Well, you need to be active. Don't just sit back and click install and those are, that's just going to go away. Be active. Take them to the cross where they were condemned in Christ. If you're struggling to see life in the Spirit, Life in Christ is better than life in the flesh because it seems like all my friends are having fun and I've got to do these things that seem less fun. Be active. Don't sit back and and expect all the things of God to all of a sudden become just the most appealing and appetizing things. You'd Be active. Take those things with you to the cross as well. See the love of Christ there. See that in him there's no condemnation. Notice that Paul, as he's instructing these brothers, as he's instructing his hearers, he doesn't give steps. He doesn't say, here's ten steps to putting to death the deeds of the body. But he has, in the book of Romans, done a really good job of exposing sin as sin. And he does talk much about Jesus. He's the one who's the propitiation for our sins, our very redemption, our righteousness. He's the one who was delivered over for our transgressions, raised up for our justification. He himself is the one who bought our peace. We have peace with God through him. He's the new and better Adam. He's the one who set us above the fall. And all of that, talking of sin is sin, and talking much about Jesus is really instructive for putting to death the deeds of the body. Paul doesn't give a how-to manual. But he sets before his audience over and over and over again the promises from God. Sin and death, their reign is over, he says. There's a new reign now. You're not slaves to sin anymore. You're slaves to righteousness. You have the spirit of life in you, and he's going to give life to you. You have eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 6, set your mind on the things. Of, don't, to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit. What is it? It's life and peace. There's promises before you. Verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your models, mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. verse 13. If you put to death the deeds of the body, what's going to happen? What's a promise that Paul is holding out for us? You're going to live. And so when by the Spirit, and this is the only way, by the Spirit you see sin rightly as sin, and you see Christ and His glory rightly, and you understand these these promises, and you live and experience the greatness of these promises, what that is all doing is draining the life out of the deeds of the body. It is draining strength and vigor and power out of sin. So that you'd be free to walk in newness of life. Christian, you are not a debtor to the flesh to live according to the flesh. You are set free by the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the body. And what's true of all of us is that there's plenty left to put to death. Romans 7, we didn't, we didn't leave that in terms of reality an ongoing reality of our lives. But what we're to do in that Romans 7 reality is we're to have a posture of active Participation, not passivity, that we are by the spirit putting to death these things. It's by the spirit, not by our own strength, not by our own discipline, not by our own efforts or how-to or instructions that we've heard from somebody. It's by the spirits. And so life in the spirit is a life of active participation. And along with this participation, life in the spirit includes a, a new and received identification. So there's there's activity and then there's identity. There's active participation and there's the received identification. Look in verse 14. Paul says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And we we don't want to read this poorly and cut it off from its immediate context, right? He just said, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the deeds of the body you will live right in verse 15 he's going to say you didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear And, and so on either side of this leading of the spirit is these these sinful inclinations like deeds of the body and then falling back into fear and in the middle of this you have the the leading of the spirit and so the being led by the spirit goes hand in hand with a resisting of sin they go together, they belong together, they always will. After all, this is the spirit of the holy God, right? He wants us to live holy lives resisting sin. This is the spirit of holiness, chapter 1, verse 4. This is the spirit of Christ, in Romans is this perfectly righteous one. This spirit is the spirit that indwells us, and so this spirit, if we have it indwelling us, will always be a spirit that leads us to resisting sin, if you're led by the Spirit and if you think of being led by the Spirit, you think of guidance in the form of some sort of mental inspiration or, or some sort of spiritual gift or divine sign. That's often what we think about being led by the Spirit. But if the leading of the Spirit here is a leading of your desires and your will and your life to refuse sin and walk in a new identity, that's clear. So Christian, when you're asking for the Spirit's guidance, you, you may not need to expect Although you may have mental inspiration, you may receive a spiritual gift or a divine sign. But what you should expect clearly from this passage is something in the form of the desire to reject sin and walk in holiness. You can expect a greater realization of who you are in Christ because you have a new identity in him. And that's what Paul gives him in verse 14, doesn't he? The leading of the Spirit. It's couched in these, these verses around it about resisting sin, walking away from sin, and within this new received identity in Christ Jesus. It's stated plainly, if you're led by the Spirit of God, what are you? Who are you? You are sons of God. There, there are not Christians and then Christians led by the Spirit, as if that's a special category. There are Christians who are led by the Spirit. And there are not Christians who are sons of God, and some other Christians who are not sons of God. Christians are Christians are led by the Spirit, and all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. Christians are Spirit-led sons of God. There's not another kind of Christian. There's not another category. That's who we are in Christ Jesus. We are sons of God, Or, or we could say children of God. He's going to use that in verse 17, or children, so he's using those synonymously. Sonship speaks of this identity that we've received in relationship to what? Here's why having the word son is is especially helpful here because it's in relation to a father. Sonship speaks of that identity as received in relationship to a father. In other words, he's saying, You are who you are in relation to the father. That's what sons are. They are who they are in relation to the Father. They're only a son because of their relation to the Father. This Father gives all sorts of identity, provision, protection, direction, leadership, all come from the Father primarily. And so, in other words, the Son receives his primary identity from the Father. In the Old Testament, this is a massive image. Just think about being sons. Who who are the sons of God? Who who is the Son of God? Israel. It's, It's referred to as both. Israel is both the the son of God, and they are collectively the sons of God. So the sons of God, what they would have had in their understanding, are God's people in God's pe- in kingdom. They are God's people that are set apart as having a unique and special relationship to the one true living God. That's who the sons are. And now Paul comes along and he's going to say, hey, the sons now are not just you know, ethnic Israel. The sons are, are those who the Spirit of God indwells. That the sons are not Israel, but those in the Son of God. Galatians chapter 3 makes this really clear, I think. And, and again, kind of a, a parallel passage. In chapter 3, verse 26, he says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. This is the passage where he's going to go on, speaking again of your standing in salvation before Christ. So this Neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek. You're you're all sons through faith. You all are what the Old Testament was looking forward to. Now in Christ, you are. You are sons of God through faith. In Christ, you are sons of God. I love the word all there. It doesn't mean all without exception, as if there's, there's universalism, like everyone's a child of God. It's not what he's saying here. All without distinction. That is all sorts of people. Jew and Greek, male and female, all of those are sons of God if they have faith in Christ Jesus. Just like all are led by the Spirit, are sons of God. That kind of all. If you have faith in Jesus, here's what it says. You are a child of God. You are a son of God. We are then who we are in relation to our Father. If the Spirit dwells in us, our identity is in the Father, and this is our primary identity now. The world will like to do all sorts of things to identify us, right? You are identified by your socioeconomic status, by your finances, by about how much money or wealth you do or do not have. You are defined by your sexual orientation or your gender options or your relationships, whether you're married or not married, whether you have children or you don't have children. You are defined by your performance in your work, whether you're successful or not successful, by how you do in a game. You are all these things. You are who you are in relation to those things. That is your identity. And what the scripture comes in and says, it says, no, actually, Christian, you are who you are in relation to God the Father. You are who you are as defined by Scripture. And here's what the Scripture tells you, Christian. You're a son of God. Human relationships, married, unmarried, divorce or not, children or not, like work associates or not, human relationships or something we do or our potential or our failures or our successes, those don't primarily identify us any longer. We don't have to find our identity in something that's as unstable as that, with the potential to fail and flop and fade with time. I think one cultural commentator says it well. She said this, I have an iron will. And all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being and then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. And I find a way to get myself out of that again and again. Sounds like slavery. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre and that's always pushing me, pushing me because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that somebody. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. I'll just ask you, do you identify with that? You struggle to prove yourself. Find your importance and your identity in the relationships you have, the things you can earn, things you can do or not. But one of my struggles is to find my identity and my performance so that if I perform well, then maybe I'm acceptable to God. Or if I can offer something of worth to others, then, then maybe I'm of some worth. That's a struggle, right? Like, Search for importance and identity and meaning is, that's a universal search. And Christian, let me just say to you that the struggle's over. That before God, there's nothing left to earn. Before God, in Christ Jesus, there's nothing left to, to prove. Here's what he already says about you right now Frail you, sinful you. You with the sinful flesh still attached to you, needing resurrection, you. Here's what he says of you right now. You're a child of God. My child. If you're not a Christian, I'm thrilled that you're here. And I would submit to you that, that, that you probably can identify with this quote from Madonna more than you realize. And I would just say, there's a better way. Turn to Jesus and you have a place of no condemnation. And that struggle for again and again trying to prove yourself that you're somebody will end. But if you're a Christian, you need to know your identity. And your identity is in the Father. All other identities can and will fade. They They will fail us. And even if they do, it's going to be okay. Because the Father has already called us His child. We no longer have to clamor for our place in the world, worry about our standing on this earth, scramble and claw and scratch to make sure we have our place because our belonging and our acceptance is secure in our Father, and it is never earned, it is never uh, worked into, it is only ever received, and so we get to live in the light of that. And one way to live in the light of that is to realize the closeness and intimacy Of that identity with the Father. This is an identity that's spoken of in intimate terms, in close terms. Look in verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Paul knows that all that he writes to, these brothers that he writes to, who have the spirit dwelling in them, they all know the experience of being slaves to sin. They all know the experience of slavery as they were sold under sin. And that slavery had along with it, as it always does, the threat of judgment and wrath hanging over. The sense that I'm I'm not right with God. Why? Because outside of Christ, you belong to sin and death. But what's true of Christians is that the reign of sin and death has now been abolished. It's gone. It's done away with by Christ Jesus. And so the spirit within not only then chases that fear of that slavery and that judgment away, but it replaces it with intimacy with the Father, right? With closeness to the Father, one you would cry out, Abba, Father, to. The the spirit then, he says, that dwells in believers is the spirit of adoption. Christian, you're not an orphan anymore. You're not one that doesn't have any roots. You're not one that doesn't have a family. You have a father and you can cry out to this father. And here's what's true when this Abba Father cry comes in is that you can know this God is the God that's not at a distance. He's not far away. Abba. It's directed to one who is near and one who is known. It's an intimate cry. It's a confident cry. You know it's going to hit the right place. That's why you say those words, Abba Father. I read once of this father who had adopted some children, and he said of the orphanage, he said this Of all the disturbing aspects of the orphanage in which we found our boys, one stands out above all others in its horror. Here's what he says It was quiet. Quiet. Think of the horror. You're crying out, but there's no one to respond. There's no father coming. That's the sounds of an orphanage. And the spirit leads those who he dwells in. And the spirit leads not to the the quiet of an orphanage or or the hush of a library. The the spirit leads us to cry out, Abba, Father. We, We cry out with the spirit in us, with. Intimacy, knowing where it's directed and that this is one we can call Abba Father to. And we cry out with confidence, Abba Father. Because we have a Father who's going to hear us now. So it's not vain or worthless to cry these things out. And instead, what we see in this cry of Abba Father is this instinctional and it's directed to God himself who is Father now. Now, Abba Father... There may be times when that, that cry out, Abba, Father, and you probably have heard this, that it's, it's gentle cooing. You know, like even children can say "Dada" and short little things like that that are kind of sweet and loving. And there may be times when the cry, Abba, Father, is like that. But that's not what he's talking about here. Cry is the word. And so cooing and, and loving like baby talk is not predominant here in this passage at all. In the Gospels, there are many who cry out. Same word that Paul uses here. And you know what they're crying out? Have mercy on me. Heal my daughter, demons, God. That's the kind of cry in the Gospels. They're loud shrieks in desperation and in pain. But additionally, we also see that Abba, Father, that that phrase, that's, that's used three times. It's used here. It's used in Galatians chapter 4, parallel passage to this, very similar to this. And the only other time it's found is in Mark chapter 14. You know what's going on in Mark chapter 14? Jesus is on his face in the garden, sweating drops of blood. And he's crying out in anguish, Abba, Father! As he faces the cup of wrath that he knows that he's going to have to drink all the way down. Abba, Father! is a cry that bursts from a child in pain, in distress, in desperation. Man, when my kids get hurt, they yell out, mama, mostly. (laughs) (laughs) Which is, to be fair, like, probably the right call. In all kinds of ways. Physically, she knows how to take care of you better than I do, like. Emotionally, again, like, when, so. Probably the right call, all right? But when your children get hurt, what do they cry out? Why? They cry out for dad, they cry out for mom, because they know that that mom and that dad is going to hear them, and this is the only one that can actually help them. And that's the kind of cry we're seeing here. So one author says, well, Abba, father, is not a restful whisper of contentment and security. It's the cry of a child who has stumbled, tripped, and fallen, and is crying out for his or her father to come help. It's the deepest instinct of the child in need. Again, not sweet cooing of a baby. This is a child in need shrieking out, Abba, father. And this is the instinct now for those who have the Spirit of God dwelling in them. That's what Paul says. Spirit cries out, Abba, Father. Doesn't mean that every time that cry is said, that it's always with great confidence and with no doubt or no despair in its voice at all. But what he is saying is that it is something that is present, no matter what else is going on. It's, if it's not instinctual, you need to examine yourself to see whether there are other faith. But if you get hurt and your first instinct is to say, I don't know, God, do something, then that's what Paul's talking about here. And this cry is part of the witness of the Spirit, which the Spirit has this ministry, a ministry of witnessing to us. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. I remember growing up in school, this voice would come over the intercom, if you're homeschooled you guys are missing out on the intercom, all right? <laughs> think, think of it like the loudspeaker at a game, maybe. The big voice has come over all the voices, and you'd hear something. And In the classroom, like, here's what we'd hear. You'd hear Dylan Zimmerman, you know, and then you're thinking, if you're in trouble, you're in fear when you hear that voice, right? And that might be a real sense of what's happening here. If you hear a voice crying out that says your name, you might be like, that might be a fearful thing. But most of the time, because we've been set free from sin, the, 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 the intercom may be coming over if we're not in trouble. It's a, that's, a, that's a great joy to hear your name. Because most of the time it's saying you're out of class, right? You've got to come, you've got to go take a picture, you've got to go do something. So you love to hear your name over the intercom. I like the intercom to bear witness with my spirit that I can get out of class, right? And we've got to think, all right, is the, the witness of the spirit that Paul talks of in verse 16, is it like that? Fear to some and and joy to others because no matter what, you're out of the class. and There might be a lot of bad things going on there, but I just called your name and you're out of here, right? Is it like that? I don't think that's actually particularly helpful. It's rare that you hear an intercom-like voice in the book of Acts where you have all these things going on. The, The apostles are laying the very foundation of the church. Pretty rare that they hear some sort of audible voice calling out like over the intercom saying, Paul, go here. You do see that rarely even in their lives. Most of the time, Paul's like, I want to make sure the gospel goes to Rome and Spain, and so I just want to go there. See, a lot of that, or how did these Romans Christians come about? <laughs> like they got persecuted, likely. They were part of the people that got persecuted in, in the book of Acts early on, and they just started spreading. Some of them were there maybe for Pentecost, heard the gospel, were transformed and just went back home. Like Where do you go when you're persecuted? Like, I don't know, just go to Rome. So the spirit bearing witness with our spirit may not be that loud intercom voice. Maybe. But, but I would say I think that that's probably rare. But along the same lines, I'm saying, what is the spirit bearing witness with our spirit? I think it's a bit unexplainable. I don't know. Even subjective in a sense. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, He, later in his ministry, while he's already at Westminster, he struggled with depression and despair at times. And he was in a nursing home for a a throat condition. And and while he was there, he experienced what he would call like agony of the soul. And he had a book along with him, a book of sermons. I think it was from A.W. Pink. And in this book, while he's in this, again, what he would describe, agony of the soul. He saw one word in that book, and it was the word glory. That's all he saw. And he said, like a blaze of light, he knew of God's glory surrounding him, had some sense of the doubt and fear that he was feeling vanishing and of the love of God in his life. And he just pointed that and said, like, I think that's Romans eight sixteen. Now, he was really reticent to talk about it, And he never actually wrote about it. And I think that that's probably kind of him. Because I don't think what he was saying, when he had lots of people, huge amount of people coming to him for help. Saying, I need guidance. I need leadership. What what am I supposed to do? He doesn't pull out this and say, here's what you do. Because I don't think he says, this is the experience that you are going to have with chapter 8, verse 16. And make that the norm. Everybody's verse 16 Experience might be a bit different, and so I think it's probably helpful not to compare. Like, what does that say? Is it, is it school intercom for you, or is it a little bit lower voice for you? Or, or how does it, what's the internal feeling? I don't think any of that's helpful, and Paul doesn't give any, give any of that. My guess is that it probably won't be an audible voice. My guess is that most likely there won't be any extraordinary means used at all. but Actually, very normal, ordinary things, like a book laying open. My guess is that most of the time it won't be some sort of miraculous experience or felt sensation. Maybe all of those things, maybe none of them. Probably be more along the lines of, in the midst of a terrible situation in your life, there's a weird sense of peace. Or or when things seem to be really crashing down, I have this desire to not go do something to fix it but pray. Or maybe it's the will in the midst of temptations and sins to say, I don't want to do that. Or perhaps it's Scripture coming alive. You read something in the middle of your life and, and just like a megaphone to your life. It might be any of those things. What I think we can say from this passage is that we can say that it's persistent. The present tense here, that the Spirit Himself bears witness. This is a consistent work of the Spirit. Why is it a consistent work of the Spirit? I think because our confidence that this the Father is our Father often falters That that our doubts about what's going on in this life and even in my own life can often rise up. That, That all sorts of despair can overshadow our lives. And because that's true, I think that's why we need the consistent ministry of the Spirit to bear witness in an ongoing way, in a consistent way with our spirit that we're children of God. That while circumstances and feelings and thoughts all shift and change, the Spirit's witness to our spirit doesn't. And it's saying to us, you're a child of God. It keeps on witnessing consistently through the shifting shadows of our life. Child of God, child of God, child of God. Each day, week, month, it comes back with the same witness to us. This is its ministry. You're a child of God. You need to receive this identity as a son of the living God. The ministry of the Spirit is one of bearing witness. And the Spirit will always witness to right identity. And that right identity is found in relation to God. And here's what Paul says in verse 17. If your children, because he says the Spirit, the Spirit dwells in you, you're children of God. And if you're children, here's what you also are, you're heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Children, sons, get the inheritance. Did you see what the inheritance was? Heirs of God. You read the Old Testament, you get confused sometimes when, when Abraham, he, he actually in Hebrews 11 says he was actually looking for a better city, a better country than the one that God had promised to him. Like he, he knew, the, the, I've seen what God promised to me, but I'm actually looking for something better. Moses has all these signs he sees of, of God's power and strength and might, and he says to God, show me your glory. Like Moses, you've seen a lot, man. Like don't get greedy, but he has the audacity to say, show me your glory. David, man, David, he's going out and he's slaying his tens of thousands. God is using him and establishing his kingdom and his throne. And what does he say? Here's what I want more than anything else, to dwell in your house, to behold your glory, to see your beauty. All the days of my life, that's what I want. Or, or Paul, he says to the Philippians, hey, I'd love to be with you. Being with Christ is better. <laughs> right? To live is Christ. I'm good with that, but to be away from the body is, is, to, is to be much better. Why, why do they say all those things? What are they getting at? They're saying that, that even if they had everything on this earth, whatever inheritance that they could get, all the, the possessions of the world, if they had all that, that's not their ultimate desire, not their greatest desire. Why? Because they wanted God. And indeed, God Himself is the inheritance of the saints the best possible inheritance that we could be offered. I love what Jonathan Edwards says when he says, God himself is the great good which they are brought to the possession and enjoyment of by redemption. He is the highest good. And the sum of all that good which Christ purchased, right? the sum of every good thing that you can imagine is summed up in God. God is the inheritance of the saints. He is the portion of their souls. God is the, their wealth and treasure." Their food, their life, their dwelling place, their ornament and diadem, their everlasting honor and glory. That's why they're not seeking it elsewhere, because they already have it in God. They have none in heaven but God. He is the great good which the redeemed are received to at death and which they are to rise to at the end of the world. This is why when we sing of heaven, we want it to be songs that are filled with God himself, because that's what heaven is. What stuns John in the book of Revelation, in his visions of heaven. What stuns the saints? Wasn't streets made of gold, though they were there, right? Wasn't all the the amazing architecture built up with glorious jewels? What stuns them? What, What makes them silent? What makes them want to cover their mouth and bow to the ground? It's God himself. And here's what Paul just told you, Christian. You're heirs of God. He is the inheritance of the children of God. And since he is without end, so too is your inheritance. Never stops. Never going to run out, never going to get to the bottom, it's never going to empty. You can keep spending it, spending it, spending it and it's still replenishing with an infinite amount that is there. Now, Paul further qualifies this inheritance. Your heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ Jesus. It's communicating, right, that you only get this through Jesus. It's only through your union with Christ that you are heirs of God. You're not an heir of God apart from Christ. We don't believe in universalism. That, Like, well, you love God and you want God, but it's through this other means apart from Christ. So you're going to get him in the end. We say, no, you're heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ Jesus, or you're not heirs of God. There's no sense that you're going to follow something else and then in the end you're going to find out that it's Christ. You're heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, or you're not heirs at all. But if you're in Christ, you are co-heirs with Christ. What belongs to the Son belongs to those who are His. To those who have become sons through His work. And so his father now is our father. His salvation is our salvation. His redemption is our redemption. His death is our death. His life is our life. His inheritance is now, what Paul says, our inheritance in him. And man, we'd like to end right there too, right? But he doesn't. Heirs of God, fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And this is reality, suffering. And it's not a downer on an otherwise very upbeat passage. We love 12 through 17a, but then I went to 17b, Paul took us down. No, no, no. The end of verse 17 is an encouragement, and it's an encouragement to this, to endure, to persevere, To keep going when it's hard and the difficulty and the suffering and the pain, which is reality of human existence, he says keep going. Suffering is the norm. It's a universal experience. No matter what, you will suffer in some capacity, in some form or fashion. But those in Christ, here's what's also true of them. They have something more than just suffering in store for them. He says if you suffer with him, you will also be glorified with him. Even if suffering is all they receive on earth, there's still something else. That's what this verse is getting at. And there will be suffering on earth, and you do have something else. Those who are in Christ have a future, they have a hope, they have an inheritance that's waiting for them, and it's as secure as God is alive, as Christ is risen. So, yeah, there might be suffering, but the inheritance is, is just fine. We will face suffering, we might face loss of property. We might face loss of relationships. We might face the loss of our life. But in Christ, we're never going to face the loss of our own inheritance. That's safe. So what do you stand to lose if you're in Christ Jesus? I want you to consider it. The greatest thing, God himself, is your inheritance. And it's his spirit that dwells in you, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're his children. And if we're his children, then we're heirs. So what do we stand to lose? Tears may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. And tears may tarry while we're on this earth, but one day we're going to wake up to a morning that never ends. We may suffer with him, but we will also be glorified with him. So, where does this leave us, church? Debtors not to the flesh live according to the flesh. We have life now in the spirit, a life of active participation. It's from life to life, a lack, a, a life uh, of living in and receiving this identification that says you're children and heirs. Oh that's the kind of stuff that makes this life in the spirits active. That's the kind of realities that make our life in the spirit something that we want to walk in. So church, let's walk in it.
0: Let's pray. Father, we are humbled at the thought that you would make yourself near and known to us. Lord, you are so full of grace and kindness to think that we as sinful human beings could be adopted into your family and be given the identity of sons of God. It's incredible. And Lord, it's amazing to think that you have not just saved us and restored us, Lord, but you've called us to be active participants in this life. You've called us to a mission that's so much greater than ourselves. You've called us to bear your image and reflect your glory in a world that desperately needs to see it. Where would we be if we did not see people around us reflecting your glory and pointing us to you, God? Help us, Lord, in this struggle. We know that you are near. We know that you have made yourself known to us. We know that your spirit lives in us, God, and that you empower us to walk in obedience. But we also know that we live in this flesh, as Dylan said, that has not been resurrected. And it is drawn to this world. And it is drawn to distractions and things that do not point to you and do not honor you. God, help us to live life in the Spirit, to hear your word and not to just know it intellectually, Lord, but to know it in the deepest part of our being, that it might render transformation, God, that produces obedience and faith. Help us to love you more, to know you better, And to hang on to the promises and the hope that we have of being with you one day, undistracted, without sin, in your presence for eternity. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.